passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Visitor, it is great to have you. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds. And as a church, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. I'd like you to ask, ask you to take your Bibles out, turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 1, where we're going to be picking up our study this morning. I don't care if that's a paper Bible or if you use an electronic Bible, it's all fine with me as long as we have our finger in the text. While you're finding that spot in your Bible, I have to give you some background. By the way, it's going to be a little bit of a lengthier time in background, but it's an important time in background. We have seen as we're studying through this section of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is actually headed out of the um, Jewish area, and he has gone north into the Gentile area. Go ahead and show us the map. Thank you, Jeremy. The, the first city, the lower one called Tyre, that is the first place he went. It's about 35 miles northwest out of Capernaum. It is a pagan city. It is a hardcore um, sinful city. But Jesus actually has gone there so he can get away from the Jews. And the, he can get away from people so he can spend time teaching and training his disciples. Because it is less than a year until he will be crucified. When he pulls into that city while he's trying to remain undercover, some people recognize him. In particular, one woman recognizes him. The scriptures tell us that she is a Syrophoenician woman. And she is a, a pagan woman. Yet she sees Jesus, recognizes Jesus, and comes to Jesus, literally gets on her knees in front of him. The tears are running down her face. She is begging Jesus to heal her daughter, to cast the demon out of her little girl. When we were studying that passage, we learned that, that Jews oftentimes have a little bit of love for the Gentiles. In fact, the Jews typically despise the Gentiles, and the apostles' response in this situation is a good picture of that. Because while that woman is on her knees begging with tears coming down her eyes and her face for Jesus to heal her little girl, the apostles simply say, Jesus, get rid of her. Uh, they despise her. Thankfully, while the apostles are cold-hearted snakes, Jesus is not a cold-hearted snake. Jesus actually heals her daughter and casts the demon out of her little girl. We learned that week some, one very important principle, and that is those who place their faith in Christ will receive mercy from Christ. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how far from God you started. You could be just like this pagan woman in the city of Tyre. But when you come and place your faith in Christ, looking for mercy from Christ, you will receive it. It was true in that day. It is also true today. Now from there... We looked at the next story last week where Jesus moved north from Tyre to Sidon. Go ahead, Jeremy. Let's put that back up there. Sidon is 20 miles north. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us anything he did in Sidon. There may have been things that happened there, but the Bible doesn't record anything. From there, he moved south and then east 
ultimately ending up on the opposite shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was about 120 to 150 mile trip. It took Jesus multiple months to accomplish this trip. And remember, we learned that the goal of this trip was not actually to get to a destination. The goal of this trip was for Jesus to spend time with his disciples, to be able to train his disciples, because soon he will be gone, and they will be in charge of carrying the gospel to the world. Now, what happened is, what Jesus did is he, when he went south, he actually arrived in the area of the Decapolis. And we just showed you this map. Uh, the Decapolis is actually a rather large piece of geography. It is 10 uh, Gentile cities, sort of a confederation that worked together, uh, like NATO as a confederation. They were actually under Syrian control at this point, and the Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Jesus came into this area, he didn't go deep into the Decapolis. He was actually on the north, or excuse me, the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, not far from the Jewish area, which was on his north and south. He was in that little sliver of land where the Decapolis connected with that body of water. And it was a very barren place. It was a very wilderness place that not many people went to. But when Jesus showed up, people started coming like ants to sugar. As soon as they heard that Jesus, the one who could heal people, was there, they came like crazy. We saw last week that Jesus healed hundreds of people while he was there. And Mark gave us one story that we looked at last week of one person in particular in that group that he healed. It was a man who was deaf and mute. You remember this man could not hear, and this man could not speak. But what was so amazing about this miracle is not just that Jesus enabled him to hear again and gave him new eardrums, and not just that Jesus loosened his tongue so he could actually speak with his mouth. But remember, Jesus gave him the ability to comprehend a language he had never heard. He planted that into his brain. So the moment he heard words, he could understand words when he had never heard them before in his life. And he also was given in his brain the ability to speak words in a language he had never spoken before. And the scriptures tell us that when God gave, or Jesus gave him that healing, the language he spoke was perfect. It was flawless grammar. Now what made this so interesting is Mark wanted us to know that whenever Jesus does something, he does it really well, doesn't he? He didn't just give him eardrums and a mouth that could speak, but he could understand the language he had never heard, and he could speak it flawlessly. In fact, that was Mark's point we saw last week. Whatever Jesus does, he does really well. Whether that is the healing miracles at this time, or whether it was the creation miracle at the beginning of time, because John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 tell us that it is Jesus who at the will of his Father created everything we see in the universe. Now, this past week, I assume some of you have been outside. Did Jesus make creation well? There's been no coffee at the coffee bar, I can tell. 
Did Jesus make creation well? Yes, it's a beautiful creation that he made because he does all things well. But if you're impressed by the healing miracles he did or the creation miracle he did, you'll really be impressed by his greatest miracle of all, which is our salvation miracle to completely free us from all of our sins and to give us the identity of being the most blessed beings in the entire universe, adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We deserve none of that because Jesus does everything well. That's what we get. Now last week, as we were studying this text uh, of the, this healing of the deaf man and the, the mute man, we ran into another important question. While this woman in the city of Tyre who had the demon cast out of her little girl was clearly a Gentile, and Jesus did clearly um, show his mercy and healing grace to this woman as a Gentile, and we know that this was a foretaste of salvation that Jesus would offer, wouldn't just be for the Gentile people, but would ultimately be for the excuse me, wouldn't just be for the Jewish people, but it will ultimately be for the Gentile people. The question became, what about all these hundreds of people in the Decapolis that Jesus healed that we saw last week? Were they more Gentile people? Were they Jewish people? Do we know? Well, what we know is this. We know that in church history, and you go back all the way to the time of Augustine, Augustine was the first one to claim that these people that Jesus healed in the Decapolis were Gentiles. And he also claimed that the 4,000 that Jesus fed that we will look at this morning were also Gentiles. But here is the difficulty. While Jesus tells, or Mark tells us directly, the Syrophoenician woman was a Gentile, he doesn't directly tell us all these people that were healed in the Decapolis and the 4,000 that are fed that we're going to look at this week were Gentiles. Mark tells us their geographical background, but he does not tell us their ethnic background. And here's my thought on this. Rather than believe that the whole purpose of this story that, that we looked at last week and the, the feeding of the 4,000 we're going to look at this week is all about God's grace to the Gentiles, since we do not know for sure they are Gentiles, it is not wise to make the whole purpose of the text about, gent feet, about God's grace to the Gentiles. The wisest thing to do when you're studying the Bible is to try and understand the point is something that is being said, not that the point is something that you don't know is being said. Last week, we saw, for instance, that Jesus does all things well. That was the point of the text. It was clearly in the text. Whether they were Jews or Gentiles wasn't addressed. And in this week, as we look at the feeding of the 4,000, it's unwise to try and make the whole point of the text something that is not clearly spoken in the text. What we need to do is we read this text about the feeding of the 4,000 in the Decapolis, keep our finger in the text, and look at what it does say that is unique about Jesus that we need to know, to love him better and to know him more.
So I asked you much earlier to turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 1. I'd like to ask you to stand as we read this together. Follow along with your eyes in your copy of God's Word. We're going to read the, the first 10 verses. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. That ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. What did this feeding of the 4,000 tell us about Jesus that we may not have known about him, but that we need to know about him? I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it has to do with Jesus' compassion. Because of all the stories about Jesus in the Bible, this is the only one where Jesus comes out and says on his own lips, I feel compassion towards people in need. Now, not that Jesus' compassion is not talked about in other parts of the Gospels. It clearly is, but it's always done in the third person, where somebody makes an observation about Jesus, and they say, look, Jesus had compassion. But this is the only time where Jesus comes out and says, I feel compassion. So I think that is the real main point that this text is getting at. I feel compassion is actually three words in English. That's pretty simple. But if you were reading this in the Greek text, you'd learn that I feel compassion is only one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word splagizomai. Now, this is actually a really cool word. And kids, I want to talk to you because here's what happens. When you're, you, you're with your mom and you're going to Walmart and she's bringing you in from the car, sometimes you spit. And what does mom say if you spit in the parking lot? Don't do that. It's disgusting. Well, here's the neat part about the word splagizomai. If you say it right, you have to sort of spit on the front end of the word. So next time, kids, you're on the way into Walmart and you happen to spit and mom says, don't do that, it's gross, say, but mom, I was just practicing my Greek. I was trying to say the words plagizomai. And trust me, she'll be real happy from that point forward. So make sure you use that to your advantage. 
the Greek word splagizomai, it means to see someone in suffering and pain and have a response inside you that you feel inside of your bowels. Literally means to see someone suffering and feel sick to your stomach for them. It's because you have such strong empathy with them. It doesn't mean to feel that sickness in your stomach because it was a really horrid smell or feel that sickness in your stomach because you saw something that was blood and guts. It's to see someone suffering and feel empathy with their suffering. Sometimes people can see suffering and experience no empathy whatsoever. Like we saw the apostles with a Syrophoenician woman a few minutes ago. She was in tears on her knees begging for Jesus to heal the daughter, but the apostles had no plagizomai. No empathy for her whatsoever. Just get rid of her, Jesus. And you know that in life, some people are that way. But here's the good news. God is not that way. In fact, one of the attributes of God is that he has great compassion for you and me. When you're crying because life is hard, God feels your pain. When you're depressed because life is overwhelming, God feels your pain and he cares about your pain. When you are sick, God empathizes with you. He cares about you. He understands what it is like, and he cares about you when you go through those difficulties. You need to understand that this empathy, this compassion is an attribute of God, but it's not an attribute of really anything else. Satan has no compassion for you. Demons have no compassion for you. False idols have no compassion for you. But God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit experiences great compassion for us when we go through difficult times. In your outlines, I, I put this in just to show you. Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. He doesn't get cold and callous towards us when we go through difficult times. They never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Or Psalm 111.4. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, it says. So as we put our finger back in the text and start to study our way through these verses we see that Jesus is in a wilderness area. He's in a desolate area. There are literally thousands of people who have come to Jesus, and they are hungry. They've been with him three days. They are without food. And Jesus has compassion. He has empathy and wants to do something to meet their need. That's where we begin. Jesus had compassion on the hungry crowd. In those days, when a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. If you've been with us through this study, you'll remember that this is very similar to something that took place just two chapters prior to this. In Mark chapter 6, we had the feeding of the 5,000. Here in Mark chapter 8, we have the feeding of the 4,000. Let me show you geographically where those took place. The feeding of the 5,000 was near Bethsaida, up there in the northeast corner. The feeding of the 4,000 that we are looking at today is down a little further. It is at that location or it is a little further south. The scholars are a little bit divided on the exact location, but that's the general location of where it took place. The feeding of the 5,000 is when some people were without a meal for one day. But in the feeding of the 4,000, people have been without a meal for, at this point, three days. Now, think about this. Without food for three days. I wonder what that was like. Has anybody ever gone without food for three days? Anybody? I had one person in the first service. I actually went without food for three days once. When I was in high school and part of the summer camp I was at, we had a wilderness training program that I had signed up for one summer. And the last part of the wilderness training program was you had to go in the woods and survive for three days without food, then hike out at the end when you had no food. And as I read this, I immediately connected with that because I know what it's like to be completely weak after three days. And the distance that I hiked to get back to civilization was not nearly as far as what these people would need to hike to get to civilization. And for them, not only was it much farther, but this is a desert place. It is a hot place. It is a dry place. And Jesus is concerned that some of them won't make it. You start to ask yourself, well, why didn't they just bring more food? And then as you think this through, it makes sense. In the time, everybody packed their lunch. They packed food where they, when they went someplace. That was just common. But apparently they had packed food to go into the wilderness to see Jesus and to be with Jesus, but they found themselves staying much longer than they ever expected. They all of a sudden realized the spiritual food they were getting from Jesus was more important than the physical food they no longer had. And they were willing to stay another day, and then another day. I'll continue to be hungrier. I'll continue to suffer physically because what I am learning from Jesus is so important spiritually. It sort of reminded me of the memory verse that we are looking at this morning uh, and trying to memorize this week. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Let me show you how this connects. I first learned that verse when I was in junior high. Uh, my mom actually gave me a, a bookmark that went in my Bible that, that had that memory verse on it. And so every time I had to pull up my Bible at summer camp for Bible reading time, I'd pull it out and turn to the section, and there was Matthew 6.33 on the bookmark for me to read. So you couldn't help but memorize it because it was always in front of you. But that verse is so important, and it's become sort of a guiding principle for me in my life 
And I think Jesus wants it to be a guiding principle for you and your life. And this is what it means. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In your life, put walking with God as your first priority. And put obeying God as your first priority. If you take walking with God and obeying God as your first priority, then everything else in your life will fall in line. Do you understand that? Walking with God and obeying with God are our priorities, and when we do that, Jesus will take care of the rest of the details that follow. Now, young adults, I want to talk to you. I know what it's like to be a young adult. You're worried, what is my career going to be about? There are so many options. Who am I going to marry? There's so many people, and I don't know which way to go and how to turn, and you get consumed with all these things. Just simplify it. Simply worry about walking with Christ and obeying Christ, and Jesus will let all the rest of the details fall in line behind you. He will take care of them. So this verse is great. It sort of simplifies the way you approach life. And this verse is almost seen in action in this section because these people have put being with Christ and learning from Christ as the first priority in their life to the point that they've been there three days without food. And Jesus is the one who's going to come along and take care of the rest of the details and provide for their needs. So let's go ahead and look how this comes together. Jesus used the apostles' meager resources to feed the crowd. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. So Jesus has this great compassion for these hungry people in the crowd. But the apostles' immediate response is, well, what are we supposed to do about it? Can anyone feed these people bread in this desolate place? There is no restaurant around. The taco truck is not there. The farm and fork truck cannot drive to that place in the wilderness. There is no food for them anywhere. And I began to question this. Why would the disciples say this silly answer? Well, Jesus, there's no food for them in this desolate place. Why wouldn't they simply say, Jesus, it's time for you to make food for them like you did two chapters earlier? (laughs) And here's what I think. I think the answer is, is that this is actually sort of a rhetorical question, not a legitimate question. They're saying... Jesus, you know there is no food for them in this place, so you are the one who's going to have to solve the problem. We obviously can't do anything about it. But this is where it gets interesting. Even though 
it's up to, uh, the disciples say, it's up to you, Jesus, to solve the problem. Jesus immediately goes back to them and says, how many loaves do you have? In other words, give me your lunch. Well, you're supposed to feed them. Why do you want my lunch? Interestingly, if you think back on the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus fed the, we learned it was actually 20,000 people. He fed the 20,000 people based on a little boy's lunch. It was a little boy's lunchable that he gave up. It wasn't enough to feed everybody, but it was a little something. Now, at this point, Jesus wants the apostles to give up their lunch. And once again, it is also meager resources, not even close to being able to make a dent in the feeding of this massive crowd. It says they had seven loaves of bread. We learned about these loaves of bread when we studied Mark chapter 6. These loaves of bread are not these massive loaves filled with leaven that you and I see at the store. They are more like pita breads. Is seven pita breads enough to feed the 12 apostles one more meal? Unless they're on a serious diet, no. So these guys don't even have enough food to feed themselves, yet Jesus says, I want your lunch. In addition, he says that they, they had a few small fish. The Greek here is interesting. It's in the diminutive. It's really small fish. It's all they had left at the bottom of the can was a few sardines. Not enough to feed all 12 of them. But yet they give them to Jesus, this meager amount. And Jesus has the people sit down. And then Jesus starts multiplying again. Multiplying the bread they gave and creating bread out of grain that had never grown just constantly creates bread in the palm of his hands. He takes those few small dead fish and he makes more dead fish. He creates them dead. He creates them wet. He creates fish that have never lived. Fish simply for the purpose of being eaten. And he keeps making them one after the other out of the palm of his hand. This is a creation miracle. Just like Jesus made everything in Genesis and created it, here is Jesus creating bread and creating fish. Let me find this. The apostles in the crowd were given more than enough. It says, And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there was about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. It says there was about 4,000 people that were fed. When we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew, we learned that the 5,000 was actually more like 20,000 because the 5,000 only counted the men. You had to add in the women and children. Interestingly here, when it says there were 4,000 people fed, if you guys know language, sometimes words are in the masculine and sometimes words are in the feminine. And the 4,000 here is in the masculine gender. And when you go over to Matthew, 
In the parallel account, what does Matthew say? He says, those who ate were about 4,000 men besides the women and children. So the truth is, he didn't just feed 4,000 people. He fed somewhere between 15 and 17,000 people who had not eaten for three days, who are really hungry. He multiplied and made that much bread. So he made fish and chips. And by the way, I think that is the best fish and chips they had ever eaten. Everybody liked it because he does all things well. So I'm sure it was really tasty food. And it says they were satisfied. By the way, the word satisfied here is an interesting word. It means to be full to the point where you cannot put another bite in your mouth. Think of how much food this is. He creates off of seven small pita breads and a few sardines that were on the bottom of the can. That's amazing multiplying miracle. Now, there's a point here I'd like to throw in that I'm not necessarily too sure I've got the, the, the point right. It's not necessarily wrong, but I think it's a good thing to make you aware of so you can talk about it over lunch a little bit. In the feeding of the 5,000, it says, after Jesus fed them, the apostles went and picked up 12 baskets full of leftovers. The Greek word for basket is the word coffinus, where we get our English word coffin from. But a coffinus is literally a lunch pail. It's a lunchbox. So we started with one boy's little lunchbox that Jesus multiplied. And at the end, the apostles all walked away with a lunchbox of leftovers for the next day. But here, the Greek word for basket is different. It's not coffinus. It is the Greek word Spiridos. Spiridos is a large rope basket. Think clothes hamper size. Acts chapter 9 verse 25 describes the, uh, a basket that Paul was let down in down the Damascus wall. It was the Greek word spiridos to describe this basket. That basket is big enough to put a human being inside of it. And they ended up at the very end picking up seven clothes hamper size baskets full of leftovers when they gave Jesus originally seven small pita breads, which is all they had for that meal. Now, what significance might there be in this? I'm not sure. I know for sure. But I, I did think it's interesting. You can talk about it over lunch. It seems like Jesus asked them to give what they had, and they did. And then Jesus actually gave them a lot more at the end. But why did he give them so much? Was it so they could keep it for themselves? So they could hoard it? Or now that Jesus had been compassionate on those who were hungry and had needs, they had a whole laundry basket full of bread, which wouldn't keep for more than a few days, that they could also extend compassion towards others who were hungry and others who were in need. I don't know if that's necessarily the point, but I think it's interesting. Because the scriptures tell us, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. 
Jesus asks us to be faithful in small areas. And once we've been faithful in small areas, then he trusts us to be faithful in larger areas. Okay, you've given me your seven pita breads for lunch, for compassion for those in need. Now I'm going to give you seven laundry baskets full of bread so you can extend compassion towards those in need. At this point, Jesus sends them away. He didn't hang around with them anymore. Last time he hung around in Mark chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, they tried to make him king because they were so thankful for all the food that he had made. He's not, not going to happen again. He's like, I'm getting out of here. Send him away. And he got in a boat, it says, and the boat went over to the district of Dalmanutha. Let me show you where that is. It is essentially crossing right across the lake to the other side, just south of uh, Capernaum and Gennesaret, which is where he started from. Um, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it says they headed to Magdala. Um, why does Matthew say Magdala, and why does Mark say the district of Dalmanutha? Here's my answer. Matthew was writing to Jews. Mark was writing to Greeks. Apparently, the Jews, when he wrote to the Gospel of Matthew, would, be more, would more recognize Magdala, and the Greeks would recognize the name Dalmanutha. So he just used the appropriate geography for the people he was writing to so they would understand the geographical location. Now let me give you three applications here as we, we round this out. First thing we see in this text is this. Jesus is full of compassion. Jesus is full of compassion, folks, towards us in our time of need. When we are crying, when we are broken, Jesus genuinely cares. He feels our pain. He cares about our pain. When we are sick, he knows our suffering and he cares about our suffering. You know, when you go through difficult times, when I go through difficult times, we always want to find somebody that we can talk to, somebody who genuinely cares about us, who genuinely wants to listen to us, and someone who feels the pain we're going through. Folks, I can't guarantee you're going to find that person sitting next to you either in this pew or in any place. But I can guarantee you you'll find that person on your knees. That when you pour out your heart to Jesus, know he genuinely cares about you and the difficulties you're going through. He genuinely feels your pain and he wants to come to your rescue in your time of need. That doesn't mean he'll come to your rescue immediately. In this situation, he waited three days to feed the people. But he really cares about you and he comes to your rescue. Number two, Jesus calls us to have compassion and to give what little we have to meet the needs of others. In both the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, notice Jesus could have made food out of nothing anytime he wanted. He didn't need to start with a little boy's lunch. He didn't need to start with the apostles' lunch, but he chose to do that. Here's what we need to understand. When we see people in need, we are to have compassion on them like Jesus and to give what little meager resources we have. 
It's our job to give what meager resources we have. It's Jesus' job to multiply it and make it enough. It's our job to have a heart of compassion like Jesus and give what meager resources we have. It's Jesus' job to multiply that and make it enough to meet the need. Number three, the compassion Jesus felt to provide food for hungry people was nothing to his compassion to supply salvation for sin-tormented people. Oftentimes we're impressed because of Jesus' compassion towards those who were suffering from hunger after not having had food for three days. What's really impressive is the compassion Jesus had towards us when it came to people, came to our suffering for sin. Not just in this life, but we are slated to suffer for our sin for all of eternity. But Jesus had such great compassion for us that he went to the cross to become sin for us. Jesus suffered the most ghastly, hideous anguish, torment, and pain ever to be experienced in the entire universe for you and me to save us from our sin. Making food for 15 to 17,000 people was child's play compared to saving us from our sin. And why did he do that? Because Jesus is full of compassion for you and for me. Not just to save us from little things like times of hunger, but to save us from big things like sin which separates us from God forever. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we come before you and we just want to thank you that you are full of compassion. That you feel our pain and you care about our suffering and you desire to meet our needs. Thank you for meeting the greatest need that all of us have. The need for freedom from sin and payment for sin. Thank you for suffering the greatest anguish and pain on the cross that ever would happen. You did it out of compassion for us to save us. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you are full of compassion for our needs. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.